Last summer, more than 1,500 hackers targeted Pentagon websites. Then they came for the army. But don't worry, this was not a massive cyber attack. These were vetted hackers invited to participate in the U.S. government's first ever bug bounty programs. Letting researchers find security flaws in exchange for money or prizes is a big part of the Pentagon's push to solve complex IT problems. To talk about all of this, we're happy to be joined by Chris Lynch, the director of the Defense Digital Service, and Lisa Wiswell, the group's digital security lead. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Podcast, where we go beyond the headlines to interview key leaders and thinkers in the field. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. First, we'd like to thank HackerOne, the world's number one bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure platform for sponsoring this episode. You'll hear from their chief technology officer, Alex Rice, later this episode. Chris, Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. So why don't you start out by telling us about the Defense Digital Service? How did it get its start? What's the purpose of the group? What are your goals? Sure. So uh, Defense Digital Service is a agency team uh, that was a spin-out from United States Digital Service. And USDS was created when we, the, and we being the government, launched healthcare.gov. And you probably remember it didn't go so well. I think <laughs> six people were able to sign up uh, for healthcare benefits on the first day. So in the world that I come from, I remember sitting on the couch watching the TV with my wife. And I remember thinking, I can do better myself. And when you say the world that you come from? So I come from Seattle. Uh, I have no family that's ever been in government. And I have no family that's been in military. So for me, I come from the basically the, what we would call the tech sector. So entrepreneur since about 2009, doing numerous startups uh, that I started and either sold off or still running today. And then before that, ran engineering for a company called Daptive for about eight years. And then I was at Microsoft before that. But I can remember watching this thing fall apart and thinking, wow, like this is something, this shouldn't be happening. Like how can we spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a system and it doesn't work? Not even a basic part of it. Except for those six people. <laughs> and that's debatable <laughs> if it worked for them. So anyway, the the idea came that we could bring a bunch of nerds in from the private sector from places that you would know, right? People who came from Microsoft or Amazon or Google or Facebook and all these different places. Have them come out here and do what they do best. So I originally actually started with the United States Digital Service team working on basically veterans' access to benefits. So when they leave the Department of Defense and they fall under the care of the VA, that was the very first project that I worked on. There were a lot of things that weren't going well. And then based off of the success of that, we created the Defense Digital Service in November of 2015 with this idea of bringing in the best talent, tech, and processes from private sector to transform these major initiatives and work on things of impact at the DOD. And that's the idea that we have today. And how about you, Liz? Yeah, I'm a, a much different story than a lot of folks that are drawn to U.S. Digital Service and the agency teams, um, and different even than a lot of the folks in Defense Digital Service in that I'm sort of a government lifer. I've been in the government about 10 years, um, working for a number of even branches of the government, but um, I've been with DOD about eight years now in some capacity, which is a really great skill to have because if you want to hack the bureaucracy, you ought to know how it works. And so that's sort of what I bring to the table. And so, Chris, you've said before that your group has some special superpowers that are unique to DOD. What are those? Sure. So when I say that we have some superpowers— what I mean is that we have some unique and interesting things that let us do our mission. If you think about it, the Department of Defense is a very fascinating place, right? We've got 
3 million plus uh, people who are um, part of this mission of defending the country, right, and, and defending the people who live here. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that, right? We built forts, we built all these different things. So it takes a lot to figure out what we need to do. And people like Lisa, um, who know how the government works, are essential to people like me who know nothing about how the government works, right? I'm just a nerd. I'm just a person who knows how to build a product. And so one of the things that we do, or we have the ability to waive policies within the Department of Defense that may be preventing us from doing a mission successfully. So that's where it's great to take some of the know-how that Lisa has from uh, her time in government to be able to actually find the exact policies that we want to push out of the way. What would be an example of that? Well, there was one that we just had pretty recently, which was related to uh, how we do basically digital signatures. So if you've ever bought a house or you've leased an apartment or leased a car, you're well aware that you can take a pen and write and write, write your signature down on a piece of paper, or you can do like DocuSign or any number of different things online, right? Well, the Department of Defense has slightly different views on how that should work. And they're actually fairly outdated because private industry hadn't created solutions to solve that in a way that was uh, considered to be legally acceptable. So what happens when those policies are actually outpaced or, or outdated by private industry we sometimes procure or acquire very expensive specialized software to accomplish the same things that you would be like, oh, that's like should cost 99 cents or something like that. Like literally something is silly and we'll spend so in some cases millions of dollars to keep those systems alive. And in some cases we'll develop it ourselves instead of leveraging commercial products yeah. that exist. Yeah, and it's a mess. So that's one of the, the ones we actually just got a pretty major win on is getting rid of that and actually having consensus that, you know, not only are we waiving this, but we don't even need to do it anymore. So we can get rid of a bunch of old, outdated, insecure software or expensive software that we don't need. So Lisa, can you explain Hack the Pentagon, how this idea came about? What's the biggest lesson learned from it? Yeah. Um, well, the idea came about a couple years ago because we had been living in this environment in the Department of Defense that we would say consistently, hey, we're secure, and so it shall be. If we announce <laughs> that we're secure, then that's great. But we have a tendency to spend a lot of money and a lot of uh, hours focusing on this idea of compliance instead of focusing on real security. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing this bug bounty concept, crowdsourcing security, evolve as an industry best practice that they were bringing to large corporations. Microsoft was able to make it pervasive across their firm. You know, even small organizations were starting to leverage this. And so we said, we've got to figure out how to bring this in. Legally, there was a framework to do it because companies like Microsoft could pull it off. So what we needed to do was sort of hack some of the policies internal to DOD uh, and work with our robust legal team to make sure that we were able to apply it just the way it should be and not be different, not have the government be different in this, but just be another customer of bug bounties. That was the ide initial idea of Hack the Pentagon. It's been insanely successful. Uh, we've had three bug bounties to date within the Department of Defense, and we have contract vehicles for all components in the Department of Defense to leverage and do their own bug bounties at any time for the next three years, which is pretty exciting. 
I'd say the biggest takeaway for me, and Chris, feel free to jump in here too, because uh, we might have different ideas, is the the government's just not different. And there's a lot of components that think, hey, we should um, stand up our own. We should we should offer a bug bounty as a service in, internal to DOD. And we said, stop. There's an industry already. There's a market for this. It's working. It's really, really low dollar compared to how we spend money on what we call security today, which is really more along the lines of compliance. Let's just use that. And once we shifted that frame of mind internally, we found that it really works well, not just for us, you know, as end users, as as customers of this, but also for our for our legal team. They think that you know this using a market that already exists is a whole lot smarter than just trying to redo it and and develop your own internal market. So was the Pentagon immediately receptive to this idea? And I mean, were there <laughs> is there any you you're, know, aware it's the, you're aware it's the Department of Defense, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what's the what's the you know was there any hesitation about allowing outside yeah. researchers to come in and yes. you know poke around in systems we, that are we yeah, actually yes. at one point for the first one had to schedule meetings in a conference room where certain people had no access to get in there so that we could keep them out. They were they were such naysayers, they were continually trying to shut it down, that one of the, the strategies that we had to resort to at the end is literally physically getting some people out of the meetings that we had because they were so disruptive to trying to make it happen. Because they were worried oh, about wow. their own careers, right? There's a belief in the Department of Defense that comes from this idea that failure is not an option. And so when you do a bug bounty, if I find vulnerabilities, that's a failure. That's the wrong way to think about it, right? Our adversaries, the people that we care the most about, they're hacking us all the time, right? They're not waiting for a bug bounty. So we should embrace this concept because it's a way for us to actually better secure what we have because there will always be mistakes that are in software. It's just how it is, right? People make the software and people make mistakes. So we should embrace that and not see it as a failure. But that mindset is pretty pervasive. Folks are coming along. Yeah. So we we now have three really great data points. Uh, lots of corporations have lots of lots more data points. But you know, having done the initial hack the Pentagon pilot, then the hack the Army program, and then we recently completed a challenge that was focused on hacking some of our critical systems internal to the department that dealt with file transfer mechanisms. Those data points proved that. The researchers did exactly as they were told and nothing else. They followed the rules to a T. We were able to get the best and the brightest to come be interested in our problem set. And exit interviews indicated that some of them were interested in this for patriotic reasons or because they they honestly think, listen, I have got nothing else I can give to my country, but this I can give. I can hack all day. And then we didn't break the Internet. Right, we didn't we didn't break anything. The building did not melt. Right, and and I- at the end of the day, we were able to sort of truncate the life cycle of a vulnerability from what used to be 18, 24 months to, in some cases, hours, days. Right, the amount of time for, that it takes from actually knowing what the vulnerability is to fixing it is usually really, really long. But this bug bounty has helped us sort of reorganize ourselves internally to actually fix those vulnerabilities in near real time. And that's a really big win. So how can we create similar bug bounty programs for 
other agencies? Like, what would be the lessons you would say for other agencies that are just as skeptical of this? Another way of framing it maybe is, why do we see it only in three pilot programs just in the Pentagon right now relative to this is considered a really good best practice in industry in general? Yeah. Well, I will say the rest of the government understands the value at this point. I mean, not maybe every single inch of it, but the folks that really matter a lot have approached us and they've asked for our help in helping stand up their own. Um, There's a couple of things that are difficult, though, that actually DOD's better organized to handle than some of the other government agencies. First is you need to have the ability to fix those vulnerabilities when they come in. So you need a remediation team that's already there. And not all government Agencies have really highly skilled cybersecurity experts to be able to do that or people that actually know something about the code base. So that's that's critical. And I know that folks are starting to figure that out and organize themselves internally. And then the second piece is we worked really hard on the hacking the acquisition cycle process. I've had a a sort of history in dealing with DOD acquisition. So we knew some of the things that we could do to be able to go fast. Mm -hmm. We also have that magic wand that you guys asked Chris about, and that helps us a little bit as well. So we moved at the speed of light when it came to the acquisition cycle. We were able to go from announcing the Hack the Pentagon challenge to launching the challenge in literally 30 days. We had two indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts stood up in three months. I mean, these are things that you don't generally have the ability to do in a lot of other government agencies. So we're helping with that. The two IDIQ contracts, our legal team and our contracting team was very, very careful to write every single data clause, everything, so that it was repeatable, so that it was cut and paste for the other government agencies, which... They're, of course, very keen to be able to take and then cut and paste and use themselves. So I expect we'll see a number of government agencies in the next probably six to 12 months that launch their own. We've certainly heard from them. So it's just their time to make it happen now. Well, so we are in a new administration. And what do you think about, I guess, the future of these bug bounty programs under, you know, the Trump administration. Have you seen incoming officials be receptive to this or do you have to sell it to them? So on day one, when uh, Secretary Mattis joined the Department of Defense, I go to, I guess what you would call the the secretary's stand up, which is the senior team that helps uh, run the operations for the, for the secretary. And uh, that was one of the that was the very first thing that I briefed up there was that we had this uh, bug bounty running against some pretty sensitive targets, uh, the file transfer mechanisms that Lisa mentioned before. And while I hate the word cyber, um, <laughs> cyber is definitely something that's on people's minds, right? And especially when you have an incoming administration that is dealing with some increasingly capable adversaries in this area. Mm-hmm. We felt that this was something that they needed to be aware of. So that was a good thing because it started the conversation in the right path of this is what Defense Digital Service does. This is how we can take some meaty, difficult subjects and push them through the bureaucracy without necessarily getting too weighed down around just how everything should function and if, if we weren't here. 
And uh, they've been really great about it. So we, we've done a number of briefs around not only defense digital service, but also around this idea that bug bounties can be a, a way for us to focus our efforts and, and expand them. So we are discussing right now additional bug bounties. So the, that's the really cool thing is that we've seen increasingly now people not questioning the value of it, but now wanting to know how they can do it within the Department of Defense. Still with us running it, so we haven't yet, uh, I haven't yet seen somebody who's like 100% taken it themselves and done it, but that's okay, right? Like over time, we can help all these people uh, run their own uh, crowdsource vulnerability discovery programs. And I, I would say I've never, you know, in 10 years in the government, I've never seen a contract vehicle go unused. <laughs> if it exists, people will use it. And and they, they exist in DOD right now. And so, you know, we can't speak on behalf of the whole Trump administration, but at least for the Department of Defense, we think that bug bounties are really here to stay from a security posture perspective. What's something else like a bug bounty was a few years ago? that's not well-known or well-respected uh, right now, but will or should become a common practice a couple of years from now? Uh, so a couple of things that we work on at Defense Digital Service revolve around this idea that we should be really good at the art of building software, right? So some of the things that have come about within the uh, software tech sector are this idea, and you can kind of think about it as, I'll just generically call it a software factory, right? If, if we were to all leave tomorrow and start a new car company, one of the first things we do is figure out how we're going to build the cars, right? What does the production line look like? A lot of times our acquisition processes and how we build software don't really take that into account at all, which sort of seems funny, right? We think about it if we're going to build a physical thing like a tank or a plane. Um, but when it comes down to the software, we don't think about that at all. So in the private sector, we talk about things like Development operations or DevOps for short, which, which is the automation of a lot of the process of building software. And um, we're working very heavily on trying to push that down into some of our more major acquisitions that are in troubled states right now because we see those as being areas where we can have big gains. So that's another area where we're trying to take some private sector best practices and then push them in. And we're doing that just as an example, on the next generation ground control software for the new GPS system that'll one day be on your phones, right? This will be the thing that'll not only support missions, but it'll also support you know, a person driving down the street. And we've seen huge gains, literally taking in some cases uh, something that took four weeks before and taking it down to about three hours right now, which is amazing because it's, it's something that should happen multiple times in a day. So we see a lot of things like that. Best practices around software development, best practices around securing software, best practices around how to have great people who are uh, leading and mentoring teams and actually know how to build and ship software. These are all things that are not necessarily birthright concepts today in the Department of Defense or the government at large. So I want to ask about the intersection now between the government and the tech sector. I mean, you saw during the Obama administration that there were some points of tension between researchers and the government, you know, over issues like encryption and, you know, proposed changes to the Wassenaar arrangement, CFA and other things. I mean, how do you think that your efforts through the Defense Digital Service and bug bounties, you know, were a step towards building trust? And more broadly, how do you see that relationship continuing in the next administration? Well, I'll take it from the bug bounty perspective. The initial announcement of the Hack the Pentagon pilot 
definitely there were some skeptical folks, skeptical researchers who thought maybe this was just the DOD's attempt to just have a list of hackers or demonize them further or whatever else. And let's be honest, I mean, as an agency, we didn't deserve a better reputation than that necessarily because in the days, you know, even before the Edward Snowden disclosures, I mean, we fairly demonized this community publicly for a long time. So by extending an olive branch, um, I, I think there was a lot of folks that were willing to kind of take that leap with us and realize that we were coming at this from like a, a humble backing to say, listen, we, we really would like your help. We had a lot of folks who were willing to take that leap with us initially. And what we've seen since is that we have a lot more folks who thought, wow, they didn't actually, I, duty didn't even know who we were. At all, at any point. they we I've got a username that you can see, that anybody can see in the platform. That's it. There's nothing else. And folks have really started to have a good trusting relationship with us. But we work really, really hard at that. We spend a lot of time. The first time I met with HackerOne, I said, whatever happens, do not make us look like chumps. If we're doing something <laughs> that sounds wrong, it probably is. And we, we shouldn't do it. We should figure out a different way because we need to make sure that we are being respectful of this community of researchers. As for trust of the government, I can't yeah. speak to that. I'll, I'll say that at least on the topic of encryption because this is one that was near and dear to our heart. We worked on behalf of Secretary Carter to help form the official stance on how uh, we viewed encryption, right, which is the Department of Defense is – one of the larger largest organizations in the world that literally depends on that every day. Like, it just has to be foolproof. And I come from a world that says that anything that you do to weaken that can also weaken our mission. So um, we definitely helped on on that and from within the Department of Defense side of the, the world that uh, you know, we're just a bunch of nerds. That's that's who we are, right? We came from the, the same place that was criticizing some of the comments that were made around encryption before. And we get to see it, Lisa and I, firsthand every day. We literally, people live or die by this stuff working. So um, it's really important that it does. We take it pretty seriously. So Lisa, you described this as a leap into the unknown. And Chris, you come out of a community where you know, startup enterprises, they either make it or they don't. So it seems you've made it. But my question is, what does this look like five years from now? How is the service operating the same or different? Who's in it, where it's located? What What is it? Give us a, a peer into the future. I'll give you the worst answer to that question. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not trying to, to slide it. I, sometimes people ask me this. I say, well, how do you see this looking in five years? And my answer is, I don't know that I care. And the reason being, um, I believe that something like this should only live as long as it's useful. I believe that we're not the first ones to show up with good ideas. And I think that as long as we keep focusing on one thing, which is making things a lot better than they were before and getting results, as long as we're able to do that, then we should be around. And in five years, if for some reason through a series of mistakes or changes or fights that we didn't win that we should have or fights that we didn't take that were meant to be taken, then it should go away, right? Uh, even with the IDIQ, when Lisa and I were talking about it, 
at some point, bug bounties are not going to be the thing, right? There's going to be other things that are going to be far more important. We shouldn't get so married to the idea that everything has to last forever. But I am married to the idea that when we show up and when people come join Defense Digital Service today, you show up to do things, right? And if we're not working on things that matter and we're not working on things that have impact, then we have failed. And so I think very little about five years and I think a lot about how we can save a life or change something or um, whatever it might be within the next six months. Literally, that's the time frame that I think a lot about, and I take it very seriously. Best case scenario is there's no need for a digital service in yeah. five years because people are starting to develop software better because we've fixed the policies and some of the regulations that that hold us back from actually having good, uh, secure IT products. I mean, I, you know, we're, we're here. U.S. Digital Service exists because the president – through all this political capital out there, and then the website didn't work, right? And so we we have to, as a government, get caught up in making sure that that is a priority. And these IT services are good, and they work the way they're supposed to, and they're secure. And so hopefully we help people enough that we are out of jobs in five years. That would be the best. <laughs> That's <case>. great. <laughs> well, so I want to ask the last question. It's the Heaviest and most serious question of all, so brace yourselves. But what's your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Favorite as in you you guys are looking really <laughs> scared and not relieved, but you know, love to love to read it, watch it, or love to hate it because it's just so bad you can't even stand to look at it. I just hate it all. Um, <laughs> I I'll say this is this is not the answer that you're looking for, but uh, I um I spent several years at DARPA before going to the Pentagon, which is awesome. Everybody should spend time at DARPA. It's super fun. Um, and one of the things that we did, we, we were working on Plan X, which is uh, this foundational cyber warfare program. And we decided that the, the way that we were going to train our soldiers was through a graphic novel. So we paid a uh, Silicon Valley-based firm to develop a graphic novel on how this platform would work. And there was a main character in it called Liberty Bell. And it was it was just as it was just as ridiculous as you would hope it would be, and that is my absolute favorite depiction of cybersecurity. There was like ones and zeros behind her. It was just tremendous. Uh, she wear a hoodie. Oh, of course. <laughs> it was a leather. It oh. might have been like a, le- a, a full leather kind outfit of slash yeah, with a hoodie. Okay. Too. Yeah, yeah, it was it was impressive. Uh, I'll give you um, my uh, a good and a bad. Um, so before we did hack the Pentagon, sometimes uh, we host a movie night over at our house here in in DC, and we uh, we did war games, and then we did um, sneakers. sneakers, right? Which are both two. Pretty decent movies, right? Uh, they they're not over the top. My least. We favorite. have to defend a yeah. former guest who created them. They're not just decent; they're good. <laughs> Walter Price was a previous <laughs> yeah, guest no, on our podcast. Yeah, no, they're they're uh, those are those are pretty good. Um, so uh, one of my least favorite is I think it was the original Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, and there's a line that says artificial intelligence risk chip with X x86 prototype or something like that and it's just makes me want to vomit in my mouth every single time i hear that line strong reaction (laughs) oh i get like i can't watch most uh things actually like mr robot's okay um it does a pretty good job i think but in general if i watch anything to do with computers in a movie i literally just i'm like i want to cover my eyes i feel like i'm watching an episode of the office 
Like, it's just terrible. Yeah. And every time there's movies, there seems to be new laws. So let's just not have movies for a while. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, CFA. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we should try and change that. The genesis of war games. (laughs) So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Next up is a sponsored interview. Sean Spazito of the Christian Science Monitor will chat with HackerOne's Chief Technology Officer, Alex Rice. HackerOne is the world's number one bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure platform, connecting organizations with the largest community of creative white hat hackers, resolving in excess of 40,000 vulnerabilities and awarding more than 14 million in bug bounties. Over 700 organizations, including the U.S. Department of Defense, Uber, and Starbucks, trust HackerOne to find critical software vulnerabilities before criminals can exploit them. I'm Sean Spazito. I'm the Assistant Director for Content Strategy at the Christian Science Monitor. And uh, with me, I have Alex Rice. You're the CTO and co-founder of HackerOne. So one, Alex, thanks so much for being with us last night at Uber's offices as we talked about like bug bounty programs. We had a series of bug bounty lightning talks and there one of your customers, LinkedIn CISO, Corey Scott, was talking about some of the unintended consequences of bug bounty programs, these sort of externalities that might be viewed as as negative when an entire industry rolls out vulnerability rewards programs. Yeah, it, it's a really fascinating area to, to explore. And um, so a bit of background on that. Most of the vulnerabilities that are reported through bug bounty programs are to a, a single vendor with single responsibilities. So LinkedIn's bounty program pays for vulnerabilities that were introduced by LinkedIn developers and can be resolved forever by LinkedIn developers. But we are much more interconnected than I think we realize on a regular basis. And a large number of vulnerabilities that surface through bounty programs are actually in shared libraries, shared components. Yeah. That we all that we all depend we, on. Yeah, all those dependencies. Like how many libraries are in an Adobe update? Hundreds, right? I lost count. Oh, I tried. Who, who would even know, right? <laughs> so he's talking specifically about the image tragic. Vulnerability. That's like right. That so yeah. this was a vulnerability uh, last year that impacted almost everybody who has any type of uh, online photo upload service. And if we're optimizing for how do we get this fixed as quickly as possible so that everybody is protected, the ideal case there is the developer is the first person to find out about it and they ship a fix out to uh, everybody who's using that that library. In practice, it didn't quite play out that way because mm-hmm. there are dozens of organizations that are vulnerable to this image magic vulnerability, and they all pay bounties for compromise of the services. So so from an individual, if we're selfish about our incentives, the right financially optimized incentive for an individual researcher is to report it to all of the bounty programs and then tell the the developer. So so instead of like reporting it directly to the company that maintains that one library, then get paid, you know, however much, right? That you report it 50 times over and make 10 and 50x, right? Right. Well, the the sad thing is, is there isn't a company that maintains image. Yeah, for sure. It's one part-time volunteer development group that, that maintains it. So there's incentive to try to find that bug in all sorts of programs that use a library rather than just reporting it directly and probably for free to, well, in, to yeah. In this case, one of the things that we um, help sponsor at HackerOne is the Internet Bug Bounty, which puts bounties on open source projects uh-huh. specifically for this. So that if you do send a vulnerability straight to these libraries, you get rewarded. But... That works for the people who are sending straight to the, to the library. It doesn't uh-huh. take into account all the other organizations that pay for it. And so what 
Corey Scott was advocating for is a sense of shared ethics around what do we do to optimize for the best outcomes now that these incentives are in place. Yeah. I mean, going back to Corey's talk, he made kind of this criticism that some companies are using bug bounty as sort of table stakes to say they're secure. Is that something that we actually see? Uh, a bug bounty program is not a checkbox. And it's not a def- it's not a part of a defense in depth strategy. It it should be, but we have to get deeper than just did you do a, a checkbox. And we've gotten good at this in other areas, right? Um, there are certain organizations that treat a penetration test as a, as a checkbox. Like, did you do one? And you can go buy penetration tests where they do absolutely no work whatsoever, that, but they'll give you this glorious report of how secure you are. And then you can buy penetration tests from organizations that actually do a phenomenal job and have meaningful certifications of what your security practices are. Mm-hmm. And we have learned to tell the difference between pen testing shops that just print compliance certificates and ones that actually do a proper assessment. And we have to bring that same level of maturity to any other security control that's that's applied in bug bounty programs are no different. Yeah, so vulnerability rewards programs aren't really right for all companies up and up and down the stack, right? Um they can be. And one of them one of the things that was really surfaced last night was the number of different ways that these bounty programs get applied. They're not one size fits all and you see very mature reward programs that tell a very meaningful story about the state of security of a particular application, giving a, a Chrome's reward program, for example, with $100,000 rewards for remote compromise of yeah, Chromebooks yeah, yeah, yeah. and a fewer number submitted every year. When you take those two stats together to say the rewards keep getting higher and the vulnerabilities are found less and less, that tells you a meaningful thing about the impact that a bug bounty program has had on the state of security for Chrome. On the flip side, if you were to take a program, a bug bounty program that doesn't reveal any of their stats, they just say they have a bounty program, but in reality they're paying below average bounties to a very small number of researchers and the vulnerability counts are increasing year over year. That tells you something about the state of their security. It's not necessarily a good thing. So we can't just say, do they have a bug bounty program? Are they secure? Uh, Of course not. That That is absolutely a uh, a meaningless statement for sure but but i think the question is like are some companies trying to use it as a way to say that they're fundamentally secure oh yeah if you find those let me uh let me know about that we'll, <laughs> we'll go have a talk so let's say we also heard justin kalmas who uh who works with you at hacker one talk about participation in black markets i was really fascinated to hear him say that security researchers uh, just don't want to take on certain risks in order to participate my understanding is that it's less about risk and more about scarcity and like barrier to entry so the, the first big misconception about these markets is that they are much, much smaller than we realize. Yeah. The vast majority of vulnerabilities out there do not have a corresponding black market or offensive market for them. And in fact, even the existence of it, they only appear at the top security programs, right? There are black markets for iOS vulnerabilities and yeah. Chrome vulnerabilities and Flash vulnerabilities. There's not a black market for vulnerabilities in your local regional bank. Or, or, like, or your Barbie doll. Or your Barbie doll, right? Like, yeah, Hello Barbie does not have a black market for its vulnerabilities. Yes. And so that means they're not as common as as we think they are, both in the the prevalence and existence. So the vast majority of vulnerabilities that are found, there is no question of should I sell this to the black market? That option just doesn't even exist. And secondly to that, they're really not that interesting as we give them credit for. Like the true criminal black markets 
are a very, very small part exactly. of the overall. Exactly. And not that many people participate yeah. in them. Well, you qualified black market with criminal black market. I mean, what do you define as a black market? Right? Is it just a, like an offensive marketplace? Or? Yeah, I love that you use that term. It is overloaded when we talk about black and white because it, it is undefined. And it becomes and meaningless, it, right? Right. And yeah. it, it's speaking about subjective ethics and, and morality. And so like if we were to find a, a pure black market as something that is clearly being used for criminal purposes, there's not that many of them. There's a much larger set of offensive markets where vulnerabilities are being purchased for offensive purposes, usually under some legal construct. Yeah. Like those aren't the same as uh, I'm selling this vulnerability to a criminal organization who's going to go directly inflict harm upon others. So one, would you consider any offensive marketplace to be a black market? Yes or no? No, they're not black. Just because black is is not really defined in the, in the first place. What I consider any offensive marketplace to be optimized in in our best interests or to have our best interest in heart? Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. We all share technology. There's not a, a terrorist group out there, for example, that is using technology that um, our own government officials aren't using. And so every vulnerability that an offensive market purchases, that they make an explicit decision not to fix that vulnerability, it is inherently keeping a large number of innocent people at, at risk as well. Mm-hmm. And those are very complex decisions to, to balance. But ultimately, I default to if we have knowledge of a vulnerability that could impact innocent people, that vulnerability should be fixed as quickly as exactly. possible. Yeah, so every exploit sold is a, is a vulnerability that goes unpatched. Right. And if you think you're the first person who ever found that exploit, you are almost certainly wrong. Everyone that we find, you have to be under the assumption that somebody has found this before me. And if your immediate reaction isn't to, I'm going to fix this so that no further harm can be caused by this vulnerability, that's disappointing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, circling things back to back to Corey, he said a lot of really fun things, right? He, he said a lot of really, um, really interesting things. I mean, have we reached a peak bug bounty hype? I mean, it feels like that some days, right? Like every company, <laughs> like GoGo, in-flight, whatever, uh, you know, Wi-Fi on a plane has a bug bounty now. Like everybody has a bug bounty. I mean, have we reached uh, like peak hype? One of the great things about this program that contributes to the hype that you do see is that the results are inherently shared and and are public. And that's pretty rare in the security industry. You very rarely see the actual results of a program. And because these results are public, it is very clear that something here is working. And when you see uh, organizations like the Department of Defense publicize stats about what they find and the results that they get out of Hack the Pentagon or or Hack the Army, it's hard to look at that and not get excited and have some level of hype about it. Has yeah. that been taken too far in, in some cases? That's a subjective argument, but I am, for one, find it very refreshing that we have security progress that is measured in quantifiable results. And I I hope we can find more parallels in in other security solutions. Well, well, Alex, thanks so much. It's been really enlightening. And um, thanks again to HackerOne for uh, for sponsoring our podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Chris Lynch and Lisa Wispel for a great conversation. And again to HackerOne for sponsoring this episode. Please join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.